This morning we're going to talk about the work of Christ on the cross. And, and talk about why it could only be the work of Christ on the cross that gives us hope. But before I do, I want to share a story. You know, my stories often revolve around my kids, and you still are putting up with that, so that's good. Last night, I um, went out to the family. I was working for a while, and then came out, and, and Mark had this really strange look on his face. Now, what he didn't know is Susie had already come and talked to me. And, and Susie had already prepared me for what was coming. God bless her. <laughs> and so I, I knew what the situation was. And but he was he was real standoffish and had this strange look on his face that he wasn't sure he could talk to Dad. wasn't sure he could talk to Dad. And, and it's real obvious with him because usually he's just hugging and tackling and, and rolling around and all those good stuff. But he just was really sheepish. I'm like, okay, son. And, and so I just went over to him and gave him a hug and said, son, how you doing? He's like, fine. He's already a man. Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> sorry, man. That's what we do sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> um, and I was like, son, so, so how you doing? And he goes, I, I, I broke it. Oh, okay. What'd you break? He goes, it was yours. <laughs> and he knew. He knew that he had broken something of Dad's. And we went to the couch, and I pulled him up on my lap and said, tell me about it, son. The best thing to do in things like this is just to, t- to tell the person right away and let's deal with it and be open and upfront with it and... We had a great talk, and he had broken one of my screwdrivers, which isn't a big deal, actually. And it was a set that was one that I let them play with sometimes. And it's this little, these little tiny screwdrivers, and they have these wooden chairs with slats in them. And so he thought it would be nice to use screwdrivers as pry bars, which I know none of us have ever done. <laughs> as we take our Craftsman screwdrivers back to Sears and get them replaced. Because the handles break off. So, you know, I can't, I can't come down too hard on him. But, and, and he had stuck it in and, and he, he, he tried to pry it and it snapped in half. And at that moment, his little heart just sunk. And you know what? Mo- mommy tried to comfort him and tried to console him. That wasn't good enough. Why wasn't it good enough? It wasn't hers. The offense wasn't to her. And so he was not satisfied or he was not able to be in relationship with me until he finally came to me and told me and we worked it out. And I said, son, that's okay. And we talked a little bit about how to use screwdrivers. And um, and I just hope he never sees me do that because, yeah. <laughs> and then at the end he says, well, I thought it was okay because I did it with all your other screwdrivers. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> But I I use that as an introduction today as we start to talk about salvation and becoming right with God. And, And how do we reconcile with God? How do we become right with God? Because in in a world where we have offended God, where we have sinned against God, and we'll talk about that, the only place that we can find redemption and satisfaction is God Himself. Otherwise, it's going to Mom, who the offense wasn't with. 
And so this morning, we're going to wade into the cross. And no other name. And, and issues of salvation. And this is such a pertinent issue in this day and age. A day and age where you hear bombarded that there are many ways to God. There are many ways to believe. Have you ever heard that? Well, it, there's many ways to God. Anyone? Yeah, I would bet almost everyone here. I, I can remember sitting in, uh, in, in college, actually, so that's been a little bit ago now. And, and I can remember sitting in a, an academy for entrepreneurs and two, two students from each college got to be part of this for a semester and we met with different um, presidents of companies. And in this particular case, we were in downtown LA with the president of Wells Fargo and talking about business and how they got started. And he was talking about values, and one of the other members from either UCLA or USC, I forget which, but he said, well, I really don't think it matters what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. And, and quite frankly, I had never heard anyone articulate that before. And I thought he was nuts. And he was, he was, he was serious. And that captures really where many people are today in the in the, the era of wanting to be tolerant and the era of wanting to accept everyone and 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 let everyone into the kingdom of God and the problem with that is that is not the gospel and that is not truth and it is not God's word and this morning while we stand firm on that i want to show from scripture why that's true why that's true one poll said that 76% of evangelicals, which would be us, believe that man is basically good. And that is not a true statement. That many believe the Gospel is mostly about God helping us help ourselves, which is an impossible statement. And so how do we stand in a culture where we are bombarded with this, and if you haven't been yet, you will be, we are bombarded with the idea of tolerance and that we are somehow nuts and fanatical because we believe there is one way to heaven. One way to heaven. And so this morning we'll talk about the cross. The one way. And the cross is one of those unique paradoxes that it's a very simple, com a simple com concept, but yet it's a mind-blowing concept. It's, it's simple enough for a child to have faith and understand and know that Christ died for their sins, but the more you dig into it, the more you unfold it, the more you study it, the deeper it gets and your head just wants to explode. One author wrote, it's a pool into which a child can wade and an ocean in which an elephant can swim. And so this morning we're going to swim a little bit. And we'll try to narrow it down to, to talking about Christ alone. And that's difficult because when we think of the cross, some of the words tied to it are substitution, sacrifice, satisfaction, atonement, redemption, purchase, propitiation, ransom, mediation, expiation, reconciliation, justification, head swimming yet, salvation, forgiveness. And I know we don't have time to go through a detailed excursus of each of those this morning. And so how do we take this mind-blowing, deep truth and come to a point of understanding that it's Christ alone that we're saved by 
and having the tools we need to engage a lost world with the gospel. With the gospel. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. To some foundational verses about God's redemption and His work on the cross. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 23, which many of you can probably quote. Any of you that have been in Awana better be able to quote it. But we'll start at verse, verse 20. Actually, let's go back to 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, as we come to Your Word, as we come to the core of our beliefs, the core of our walk with You, may You stir our hearts to appreciate the cross, to appreciate Your work. Challenge us with Your Word this morning. In Your name, Amen. Christ alone. This is the second of the solas we'll talk about. I know we spent a long time on Scripture alone. We'll be going through the next few, just one a week, um, as we set the foundation with Scripture alone. But Christ alone, or solus Christus in Latin, it was one of the, the Reformation standards and one of the beliefs that Martin Luther and the other men of the faith held to in opposition to the church of the time. Because salvation had grown into so much more than Christ. It was Christ and. Christ and this, Christ and this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this. Oh yeah, and, and remember Christ, and you have to do this. And so the, the, these leaders, these church men of God said, no, that is not what Scripture teaches. And so this morning we come to the second one, Christ alone definition of what we're talking about and this is again simple but as we dig into it it's complex salvation is accomplished entirely by the work of christ on the cross salvation is accomplished entirely by the work of christ on the cross and i would underline the word entirely today that Christ's work on the cross was complete and sufficient for salvation in its entirety. Nothing more needs to be added. In the next two weeks, we'll also look at grace alone and faith alone. And, and these three really go together and they're hand in hand because salvation is because of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And so these are all different aspects of the same thing. But salvation is accomplished entirely by the work of Christ on the cross and through no other. And through no other means. 
And I'd like to look at just four different talking points this morning and tie some questions that I often hear with those and how do we answer those. One of the top questions that I hear from people that, that don't know Christ and is, well, isn't God a God of love? Can't He just wipe away our sins because He loves us? And, and the whole idea that there has to be a payment for sin is such a thorn in the flesh for people that they abandon their view of God sometimes, quite frankly, because they had a wrong view of God and they needed to abandon it. Why doesn't God just ignore our sin out of love? So the first point, the redemptive work of Christ expresses God's character. The redemptive work of Christ expresses God's character. Now to me, this, this one is actually a much bigger issue. As I, as I talk with people, as I work with families, as I work with parents to their kids, I think we've lost track of what love is. I think we have a completely wrong view of love. And so in our view of love, we can say, well, yeah, God should just save everyone. But that is a completely... Dis- disabled view of love. Damaged view of love. Let me explain. Let's look at God's character. And remember, when we think of God's character, all of His character exists at the same time. It's not like, well, He's loving for this minute, and then He's just for this minute, and then He's holy for this minute. God is always all of His character. Okay, so that's a foundation. Make sense? So two of the, the parts of God's character that we want to look at this morning is first, and we've sung about both of these this morning, the first is that God is just. God is just. And this comes from His holiness. This comes from His righteousness. Because a just God and a just person, and if we think of it in interpersonal relationships, a just person stands up for what? Righteousness. For what's right or wrong. And when something is wrong, it just bugs them. Gets under their skin. They want to hit something. Well, maybe not. That wouldn't be... Never mind. Uh, and, but it, 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 it drives them nuts because it's about righteousness. And righteousness and holiness must respond when there's a, an affront to righteousness and holiness. That is justice. I mentioned that we'll be looking at the Romans 3 passage and a number of other passages. But look towards the end of that passage. Look at verses 25 and 26. God presented Him, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. And that word for atonement is propitiation, which we explained in our Christmas service, taking God's wrath. And so Jesus was a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He, being God, did this to demonstrate His justice. Because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, And he's referring to the Old Testament there where the sacrificial system was looking forward to the the sacrifice of Christ. And then in verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, God is just. He never turns that off. He is always just. And His justice demands satisfaction for an offense. There can be no other way. If God at some point does not demand satisfaction for His righteousness, He is not just, He is not holy, He is not righteous. And then why are we here? It's that important that that all of His character is held 
and held at the same time. His justice demands that sin be paid for, and we'll look at that a little bit more in another point coming up as we look at the the earlier verses. But along with His justice, God is always love. He is love, we saw in 1 John. And in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we see two characteristics, and His love is what prompts Him out of grace and out of His sovereignty to save some. To offer a means of salvation. His love prompted Jesus coming to earth and dying on the cross so that we may be saved. His character is both just and loving at the same time always and forever. And because of that, any means of salvation that we consider must satisfy God's justice and must exhibit His love. It's one of the tests that we can use. And quite frankly, no other means of salvation people are proclaiming out there does does that. Christ on the cross is the only way that that is possible. Now, let me dig into this a little bit more because it's like, okay, love and justice, I agree, yeah, that makes sense. Think about this. Can you have love without justice? The world says yes right now. And I think that's where we have gone astray of love. Love cannot exist without justice. Think of the parent that out of love gives their child everything they ever ask for. Don't roll your eyes. (laughs) Is that love? No. Think of the parent whose child at an early age begins to steal and walks into stores and steals and the parent says, I love you, I'm not going to deal with that. Is that love? Absolutely not. The world would say yes, but truth would say no. You cannot have love without justice. At the same time, justice without love is equally scary. Moms, dads, imagine if you never took the time to love your children, explain discipline, discipline properly, and it was just always the hammer, and always discipline, and always justice, and always angry words. How does that child turn out? Bitter, resentful of the truth, and they usually walk away from God. See, justice and love are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. The other day, again, another kid's story, but this is so appropriate in this context as we are God's children. The other day I was, I was disciplining Mark for, for a situation and we were talking about it beforehand. And we usually talk that through. And and I know as a parent, I know that that takes a lot of time and it's harder. But I encourage you, love and justice at the same time. And we're talking through it and I can see him getting more and more frustrated. And, And finally he said, Dad, that's not how it happened. 
And, and we went, and, and I, I heard his side of the story, and, and went and talked to Susie, and, and found out he probably was telling the truth. In fact, we were almost sure he was telling the truth. And because we took the time out of love to talk and to listen, it spared what would have been an unjust discipline. The two go hand in hand. In that action, I believe moms and dads taught him more than what a simple spanking would have taught him. Because it displayed God's love and it displayed God's justice. I challenge you, moms and dads, are you doing both with your children, young and old? It's easier when they're younger. When they're teenagers, how do you display love and justice or righteousness, holiness? And I watch families as we struggle with this and we're all in the same boat, but we err on one side or the other depending on our personalities. And we are harming our children. If we let sin go with our children, we are teaching them to disobey God. But if we do not love them in discipline and listen to them, we are teaching them to hate God. Moms and dads, take heart. We exhibit God's character and we should exhibit God's love and His justice. But the character of God demanded that salvation and whatever form of salvation if we were looking at all of them objectively and saying, well, which one's true? It demands that it be one that satisfies the justice of God and exhibits the love of God. And that is foundational. Second thought as we think of Christ alone and that salvation comes from Christ alone. Christ's death on the cross is the only answer for sin. Christ's death on the cross is the only answer for sin. And as we talk, I I know full well that these concepts are not new to us. But they should be beautiful to us. They should be precious to us. Can we get tired of singing about the cross? Can we get tired of praising God for His work on the cross? And so Christ's death on the cross is the only answer for sin. And the the statement that we hear from the world is, well, that's intolerant. That's intolerant. That is so narrow-minded. Yeah, it is. And we'll talk about why. The question isn't whether it's tolerant or not. The question is whether it's true or not. And we've allowed people to redefine the question and we lose discussions and we miss opportunities to share the gospel because we're arguing the wrong questions. The question is, is it true or not? Is it saving or not? If I'm tolerant of people that are jumping off a cliff, I'm not saving them. And I'm not loving them. The other thing I've heard is, well, sin isn't that big of a deal anyway. We're all sinners. The phrase that you've often heard is someone will say, well, I'm only I'm only human. And that phrase is deliberately making light of sin. And and making sin be less than it actually is. 
And so when we think about, well, Christ's death on the cross is the only answer for sin, we have to start with sin. We have to start with the offense. And we come back to Romans 3, and actually the the passage that we read will follow through the points this morning. But in Romans 3.23, the first verse and, and the verse that we've memorized about sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think about that phrase for just a moment. Number one, all have sinned. So everyone's part of that, that boat. Everyone's on board. We've all sinned. Very few people will tell me they haven't. But think about the second half of that. As, as he defines sin. And fall short of the glory of God. Not just this list of instructions that I should do, but that we miss the mark of the character of God, the glory of God, of who God is. What is sin tied back to? The character and person of God. Now, now bear with me a little bit. Do you think about infinity ever? I did a lot of math work early on in college, and, and that was one of my, my fields of study. And the, the idea of infinity is really mind-blowing. I think about infinity as having no end. Do you ever do you ever just hurt yourself when you think about this? Yeah, I think about every star in the universe, which which they're always discovering more more galaxies and uh, more stars, and that is just a speck compared to infinity. Infinity has no beginning, no end, and so God always was and He always is. Now God, in His sovereignty, made us. He created all things. And it would be like if I created this microphone, and, and I didn't, but that'd be fun. And, and so I create a microphone, and then I use it, and, what, and nothing happens, right? And, and I'm sitting here, okay, why aren't you work, working? And, and just humor me for a minute. The microphone talks back to me and says, I don't want to do what you say. I don't want to do what you've asked me to do. Now, what do I do with the microphone that I made? I throw it away. Because if it's not going to do what I want it to do, I'll build another one. Because as the Creator, I have that right. And if it goes against me as the Creator, it is offending me. Just like Mark with the screwdriver. And that's just a a, a small little speck of what it means to sin against God Almighty. God Almighty is infinite. He has always been. He always is. And we as His finite little creations say, I don't want to follow you? Really? Really? And because God is infinite and we are finite, and just follow me on this, our offense, our sin is falling short of of our infinite God, our perfect God. And so it is an infinite offense. It is much much bigger than if I happen to to say an angry word to Phil. Although that is sin against God as well, because I'm not exhibiting His character. But sin is an infinite offense against an infinite God. And that is it, it is foundational that we understand that, because that helps us stop taking sin so lightly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And we know that the result of that sin in Romans 6.23 is death. The wages of sin or what you've earned for sin is death. And that wasn't a new thing from God. God told Adam and Eve that in the garden. If you eat this, you will surely die. And so sin, because it's an infinite offense against an infinite God who created us, He then has every right in His justice to implement the the penalty that He said that that earns, which is death. And so the, the foundation for understanding Christ alone is understanding we deserve death and God is fully just to kill us all. Encouraging, isn't it? Let's go out. That's not the end of the story, though. But that's where we have to start because I have witnessed to people and shared Christ with people and we've never been able to get that part and so they think they're good enough. And I can't get past the point with them sometimes that sin deserves death. It is an infinite offense. Now that sets up the, the argument for why Christ alone. Because to pay for an infinite offense the payment had to be made by an infinite, perfect man, God. And we talked about that at Christmas time. And so any other religion, you can just ask, well, okay, is, how, how are you saved? Okay, is there an infinite, perfect person that is both God and man at the same time that has paid the price for that sin? Because if there isn't, then the price hasn't been paid and someone still has to die. And then their head is swimming, and and so you might word that differently. But do you follow where I'm going with this and where God's Word goes with this? Hebrews 9.27, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. And so in a movie, our sin sets up sort of the, the crux of the story. The, 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 the dilemma. We deserve death. No one can argue that. God's justice demands that. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Praise God, He didn't just wipe us out. Like we would with the disobedient microphone. Because we read on from verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation through faith in His blood. So Christ can be the only way because sin is so serious. It is an offense to God's justice. And so Christ, through His sacrifice, redeems us and and absorbs or takes God's wrath. Remember the example from Christmas? I, I was angry at Joshua, I think I used as an example. And I said it would be like if I'm pouring out my anger on Joshua and someone, maybe John, comes in and steps in the middle and say, here, be angry at me. Let me take that for you. And Joshua's protected. And that's the image of what Christ did on the cross. 
couple of key words you see in verse 24. You see redemption or ransom. Sometimes it's, it's translated. And it's the idea that Jesus through His act redeemed us from the bondage of sin. Paid the price for us so we would owe sin nothing. Praise God. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And as the perfect God-man, He could be the ransom for many. You see concepts of substitution. The idea of atonement and propitiation is that God substituted Himself in our place. If God was only just, I would be on that cross. And I fully would deserve it. And I would have no complaint or no valid complaint for being there. But because of His love, He took the place as a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, you might say, well, you're making a big point of that. And I am because there's, there's a lot of other people out there that don't like that idea. Well, how? Because that's a God of wrath. Yeah, yeah, it is. Because God hates sin. And God will judge sin. And so they've tried to water down the cross and say, well, it's just an example. Christ was being an example for us when He died on the cross of how to obey. No, it was much more than that. Yes, He was an example for us, but He was us on that cross. Some will say, well... It was a moral influence. It was, it was showing us how much God loves us and that love will motivate us to follow Him. Well, no, we know from Scripture that there is none righteous, no, not one. And we cannot follow God's love on our own. And being motivated to do it won't help. Some have said, well, it was an accident. God didn't know it was going to happen, but He's made the best of it. And that's just heresy. Some have said, well, Jesus just wanted to be a martyr because martyrs really inspire people. And you'll hear people say these things and none of those things are true. Maybe maybe he was an example, but not for salvation. And so none of those things are the gospel. Let me just read a couple of other verses. And there, there are hundreds of verses on this. And we could spend hours just on this issue. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 1 John 2, 1-2 and 2, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. For there is one mediator, one, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. Only Christ could be a substitute for the wrath that we deserve. Why Christ alone? Because no other 
means of salvation that I have heard anyone ever share accomplishes that. We stand on solid ground when we say Christ alone. Don't let anyone tell you differently. But the story just isn't that God took our wrath. It wasn't just a transaction between God and Jesus on our behalf. And point number three, which is so encouraging, only Christ as our substitute can give us His righteousness. Only Christ as our substitute can give us His righteousness. Or to use a theological term, His righteousness is imputed to us, placed upon us. It's like taking a robe of Christ's righteousness and we wear His robe. I get excited about this one because then it's, it's not just the negative side that He took the penalty, but that His righteousness is placed on me. On you. On everyone who believes. And it's not a righteousness that we earn. It's not a righteousness of our own. It's Christ's righteousness. Because He substituted for us. And that substitution went both ways. It was a two-way street. The next chapter, Romans 4, starting at verse 5. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So it's not just that God turns away His wrath, but God looks at us and sees righteousness. Because he sees Christ. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Only Christ, as the perfect man, as the righteous man, could give us His righteousness. Again, it's another argument for Christ alone because no other religion, no other way to be saved has a perfect man that is God that can substitute for us for God's wrath but can substitute His righteousness over us. Think about that. Now just by way of application, Satan loves to destroy our thoughts. And He loves to take us captive by our thoughts because the dilemma is this. I have Christ's righteousness on me, but I sinned today. And I sinned yesterday. And I suspect I'm going to sin tomorrow. And I know from what you said that that is not a light thing. And so I'm burdened by that sin. But once the transaction of justification takes place, and that's a legal term saying that God has declared us righteous by His Son's righteousness, just as that takes place, our sin is now different. Because our sin is now still serious. We still confess. But it is paid for. And that guilt and that shame... It should only last until we confess it and bring it to God. And if it lasts beyond that, that's the evil one trying to say you are not a child of God. And I get so frustrated when we walk around and we say, well, I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. I'm a failure. What is God ever going to do with me? Well, actually, He sees you as righteous. 
And if we think of ourselves as sinners, not that we don't sin, but if we see ourselves as our identity as sinners, we are denying the cross. And we are saying Christ's righteousness is not enough for me. Instead, we should be seeing ourselves as saints. And we've talked about that in Philippians, but we we should be seeing ourselves as men and women of God, His children, as saints. That when God looks at us, He sees Christ's righteousness. And we let Satan defeat us because we let him define who we are. And you, if you have believed in Jesus Christ and accepted Him as your Savior, you are a child of God, adopted for life, justified by the blood of Christ on the cross that is entirely sufficient. And that is your identity. And we need to lift our heads up, confess to God, and do His work. Finally, point number four. I can do nothing. Christ has done everything. When we think of Christ alone, our thoughts should go to, I can do nothing. Christ has done everything. And there's two sides to that. The first is, I can do nothing. There is nothing I can do to save myself. It would be as if I was wrapped in chains completely bound with weights on my feet and thrown in the ocean. And I can struggle all I want. Am I going to save myself? No. I am dead. I am dying. And then Christ, by His grace, comes and plucks me out of that ocean and rips the chains off. And I have done nothing. And we know this from Scripture, two popular verses for this, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, referring to all of salvation. Not by works so that no one can boast. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of righteous things, righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, it's not God plus man. It's not Jesus' righteousness plus mine. If I have to do anything to secure salvation, then I am denying that Christ has done the work. This was huge at the time because the Catholic Church was saying, well, actually, human merit was needed. And so they were adding to it that you had to do certain things and, and maybe the, the sacraments, the communion and baptism. And they also had this whole system where the saints, the ones that have gone before, had built up a treasury of merit. And it's sort of like a bank account of merit because they were really good. And so they had extra. And so then by praying to the saints, you could earn some of their merit for your salvation. And the problem with all of that is, is it denies the deity of Christ. And it denies the work of Christ. And it puts it in my hands, which God says there is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God on his own. You know, for us today, we don't add to our salvation. We don't somehow come to God because we go to church regularly. Because we read our Bible regularly. Because our, we were, we grew up in a Christian home. None of that saves us. The only thing that saves us is faith in Christ Jesus. 
because he has done all the work. Praise God, that responsibility is not on me. Imagine if you were responsible for your salvation. We lose. I don't want that pressure because I can't do it and I know I will fail. I think this again is very pertinent to our society today because we live in the American dream. You guys heard of the American dream? You know that phrase was coined in 1931 by historian James Truslow Adams in his book Epic of America. Coined an American dream and he described it as the ability to, to attain to all you can be on your own work ethic. So if you work hard enough, if you're dependable enough, you can do whatever you want. And that's the American dream. And we've bought into that. And we've bought into that with salvation. To say, if I work hard enough, if I'm spiritual enough, if I do the right things, I can get to heaven. Or I can earn favor with God. And you can't. See, I firmly believe if we don't understand the depth of sin and the depth of Christ's sacrifice as He hung on that cross bearing our sin, and at that moment in time, bearing the sin of every believer that ever has been and ever will be and ever is. Can you imagine that much sin? And in a moment, he paid that price. And his sacrifice is completely sufficient. I want to end with a couple of thoughts and then we're going to sing one more song together. Is Christ the only way? Is Christ the only way? I want to throw out just some some sort of talking points. Some things to think about. Because we see it in Scripture, but because it's true, it also makes sense. And we see it in Scripture with verses like John 3.18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If you believe in Christ's salvation, any other choice, condemnation. John 14.6, Jesus answered and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. 1 John 5.5, Who is He that overcomes the world? Only He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name. Because no one else can fulfill God's justice and His love. But think about, is He the only way? What if He wasn't the only way? Some of the repercussions of that, number one would be we'd never know if we were really saved. If you're really not sure how to get there, it's really hard to know when you're there. People are always switching around religions and switching around what they try, hoping to be saved. It's not something that we have to hope and dream of being saved. 
through Jesus Christ, we can be saved, and him alone. One of the other points that sometimes I'll talk with people about, they'll say, well, you know, all these things are the same God, and they all lead there. And something I'll ask them is, well, which one is true? Because they all claim to be true, and they all claim to be that the other is lying. And logically, you cannot have multiple truth claims. You know, if, if, if Joe and Fred here are in an argument, you can decide which Fred. <laughs> and, and Joe is saying, well, Fred hit my car in the parking lot. And Fred is saying, well, Joe hit my car in the parking lot. Can they both be true? Well, I guess in that case they could if you did it at separate times. But maybe Fred says, Joe hit me first. And Joe says, well, Fred hit mine first. They can't both be true. And when you have multiple religions all claiming to be true and the others are false, that can't happen. And so people that say, well, they all lead to God, they're, they're nuts. Another just thing to think about. If I'm, if I'm having something at my house today and I'm telling you how to get there and I say, well, if you just go down West Street to Catella and turn left and go right on Walnut and left on Cerritos and left on Bayless, but actually, why don't you go, go right to Chapman and go to Euclid and turn right and maybe take Chris Street in and or Loera and then come around that. Well, no, come to think of it, I'd rather you take Harbor and go all the way past Disneyland so you enjoy the traffic and go to Ball and come back around. Have I helped you? But if I give you one way and say, this is how you get to my house, the simple solution works. God doesn't want to confuse us. He desires that all men are saved. One last one to think about. If the death of Christ was not necessary. And we saw two weeks ago when we looked at not my will that God said it was necessary. If it was not necessary and God the Father made him die the most horrendous, horrible, painful death, what does that make God? It makes him a monster. And it, it violates his character. And so if we say there are other ways to God and other ways to heaven, we are calling God a monster. Because we are saying you put your son through that for no reason. Dads, would any of you just take your son and for the fun of it, start pulling out their hair, start jamming thorns into their scalp, maybe whip them a little bit just because you enjoy it? No. We would put you in jail. Christ's death was absolutely necessary and is the only way to heaven. I encourage you to live in light of the cross. To make the cross central to who we are, to what we do, to our conversations. It's central to the Bible. It's central to, to every book of the Bible in the Old Testament points to the work of Christ. Every book of the Bible in the New Testament points back to that and instructs about it. Is it central in our lives? Or do we get bored of hearing about it? Has it made a difference? Am I sweetly broken? Am I wholly surrendered? See, the cross is an activity that changes us every day rather than a one-time event.
It is of first importance. And we should think about it and be blown away by it. This morning, you may be sitting here and you may be thinking, you know, I have never accepted Christ as my Savior. I have never accepted God's work on the cross. Today's the day. Because there is no other way to pay for your sin. There is no other way that salvation can be secured. All other ways lead to hell. Only Christ leads to eternity with God. Because only Christ satisfies the Creator and the offended one. Just close your eyes for a moment. If today God's Word has touched your heart, and you say, Pastor Ron, I need Christ. I've been trying all kinds of other ways to be holy, but I need Christ. Would you raise your hands just with no one looking? And repeat after me, just in your head. Lord God, I know that I have sinned. And that my sin has offended you deeper than I could ever dream. And Lord, I know that I deserve death. But by your grace and love, you have provided a substitute for me that will take my place and make me righteous. Thank you, Lord God. I accept you. I follow you with my life. I will make the cross the center of all. In your name, amen. If that was your prayer this morning for the first time, you are now a believer. And I encourage you to share that with myself or one of the elders, and may we rejoice together. But let's stand and sing one more song. It's a new song. If you want to listen to the words, that'd be great. It's called The Power of the Cross. Ring.
Genesis, in Genesis, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe and author of revival. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the walls of salvation. In Esther, he is our Mordecai and preserves the line of Christ. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he is the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace and the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in life's fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost and fire. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the mighty to save. In Jonah, he is the saver and forgiver of all who will come to him. In Micah, he is the messenger of beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist crying, Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain opened up in the house of David for sin and uncleanness. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he is King of the Jews, the Messiah. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he is the Son of Man. In John, he is the Son of God. In Acts, he is the Savior of the world and the foundation of the church. In Romans, he is the righteousness of God and imputes that to us. In 1 Corinthians, the last Adam, the rock that accompanied Israel and the one with victory over death. In 2 Corinthians, he comforts in trouble and reconciles us to himself. In Galatians, he is your liberty. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church. In Philippians, he is your joy. In Colossians, he is the fullness of God and he is your completeness. In First and Second Thessalonians, he is your hope. In First Timothy, he is your faith and mediator. In Second Timothy, he is your stability. In Philemon, he is your benefactor. In Titus, he is truth and our blessed hope. In Hebrews, he is the blood that washes away our sins. In James, he is the power behind your faith. In First Peter, he is your example. In Second Peter, he is your purity. In First John, he is your life and love. In Second John, he is our pattern. In Third John, our motivation. 
In Jude, He is the foundation of our faith. In Revelation, He is our coming King. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the keeper of creation and the creator of all. He always was, He always is, and He always will be. Unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never undone. He was bruised and brought healing. He was pierced and eased pain. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought life. He is risen and He brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world can't understand Him. The armies can't defeat Him. The schools can't explain Him and the leaders can't ignore Him. Herod couldn't kill Him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse Him and the people couldn't hold Him. Nero couldn't crush Him. Hitler couldn't silence Him. The New Age can't replace Him. And daytime talk shows can't explain Him away. He is light, love, longevity, and Lord. He is goodness, kindness, gentleness, and God. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and pure. His ways are right. His word is eternal. He is my Redeemer. He is my Savior. He is my joy. He is my comfort. He is my Lord, and He rules my life. That's the power of the cross. The ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead are raised to life, finish the victory cry. Miss the power of the Christ became sin for us, took the blame for the wrath we stand forgiven at the
stand forgiven at the cross. Lord God, our Father, we have done nothing and can do nothing to save ourselves. And so, Lord, all glory is yours. All majesty, all praise, and all worship. And may our lives reflect that. Thank you, God. In your name.